Well, good morning, Hallows Church. My name is Bryant, and I serve as one of the pastors. And it's my privilege to lead us in our study of Acts this morning as we continue to discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life. Thank you, Lindsay, for taking the time to take us on this journey through the passage today, as it is important to set the context so that we might understand uh, the bigger picture of what God is doing, and particularly in the Apostle Paul's life, as he is establishing the early church. Um, but more than anything, than, than you perhaps feeling like that was a lot to be read uh, in this context, I hope that it, it just uh, impresses upon your heart uh, the priority we place upon the the public reading of scripture, whether in this virtual venue or uh, when we are gathered together in the same space as we hope to be able to do sometime in the near future. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your love, your kindness, your grace, and your mercy toward us in this moment, and that we are able to open the scriptures and study your word together. Pray that you would remove all distractions in this moment, that we would be able to focus upon you, that we would set our, our minds' attention and our hearts' affection upon you, Jesus, and that, Holy Spirit, you would uh, continue to stir our affections, that you would continue to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from the Word of God, that we would see Jesus lifted high, that we would give him glory in our life, not only in this moment as we turn our attention to what you have to say, but when we leave this moment, that you would empower us uh, to live out the truths and the realities that are exposed from the text today. God, we love you and we trust you for what you're doing in our life and in our church and in our city in these moments. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I love a good courtroom drama, especially one where the person on trial is being vindicated uh, by their own testimony. And through their own words, the false accusations that are being brought against them are basically being shattered. They're being exposed for exactly what they are. Well, that's the, the, the case for the Apostle Paul as we open our Bibles to Acts 25 and 26 today. Uh, he's endured a, a lot in the last several weeks, and God's not done taking him through the fire just yet. Though it's only been seven days since we opened our Bibles together and studied the book of Acts and the timeline of the text, it's been two years. And we find the Apostle Paul right where we left him, which is in prison. Well, after having spent the time reading through the passage together, I want to take the next few moments uh, bringing to our attention. I want to spend the next few moments bringing to our attention uh, a few edifying truths. And I think the first thing we notice in this passage is God's sovereign protection. I think we see that in Acts 25, 1 through 12. And I think one of the ways that we see God's sovereign protection at work is through the fact that Paul is still alive. Even though he's in prison, he's still alive after two whole years. Felix, who was the governor of Caesarea at the time Paul was imprisoned, he was a wicked man. Uh, he was a greedy man. And in his greed, he had hoped to receive a bribe, whether it came from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem or whether it came from Paul. But based on who he received the bribe from, it would determine what he would do with Paul, whether he would hand him over or whether he would set him free. But in all that time, no bribe ever came. And I think in hopes of being able to, to set Paul free, to get him out of, out of his charge, he visited Paul often, hoping that Paul would, would somehow just get the point. Like, man, if you would just, just give me some money, I'll let you go. Or if they give me some money, I'll give you over to him. 
But that never happened. And I think that was a part of God's plan because I'm sure, I'm confident, knowing what I know about the Apostle Paul from the scriptures, what Paul gave Felix likely every time he came to visit him was the gospel. He spoke the gospel to him over and over and over again. You know, I think there are situations and circumstances that come up in our life. Uh, Take, I don't know, maybe a particular job that uh, you've worked for some time, whether that's a long time or a short time, and you maybe felt like, man, this is the end of the road. I've grown. I've gone as far as I can. I've grown as much as I can in this role, in this place, and I'm ready to move on. Your resume is out. Maybe your, your, your coworkers or your boss, they're on notice. They, they know that you're ready to take the next step, and they're ready to cheer you on, and they're just waiting for it to happen, waiting to hear from you. But the door never seems to open for some reason. And we wonder why. We wonder why for so long. And it might not even be that it's a situation that's all that terrible. It's just that you're ready to to move on. But maybe, might we consider that maybe, just maybe, God is keeping you there for as long as he is. Not for your sake, but for the sake of those you work with. That they might continue to experience his power, his love, his grace, his kindness on display in and through your life. And I believe that is an aspect of what God is doing through the Apostle Paul as he is keeping him in Caesarea in jail for over two years. He's protecting Paul, but I believe he's also protecting the gospel. God protected Paul by not changing his circumstances, not letting him free from prison, but rather by changing the administration that he was living under. God undoubtedly used Paul in Felix's life as he came to him uh, on a frequent basis to spend time with him. And I'm sure Paul shared the gospel with him. But what he did was change the administration by having Festus succeed Felix in order to continue his perfect plan of getting the gospel to Rome. That was God's purpose. That was, that was Paul's desire. His face was set toward Rome, even as Jesus's face was set toward Jerusalem, toward Calvary. He knew that's where he was being called by the Father, by the Father to go. And Paul knew that God was calling him to get the gospel to Rome. And once Festus is installed as the, the new governor of Caesarea, He wastes no time connecting with the Jewish movers and shakers, trying to figure out what their deal is exactly with Paul. What's what's up with Paul? And what's up with you guys? And what do you have against Paul? What's going on? We see God's sovereign protection at work in that even though it would bode well for Festus uh, to, to, for him to get in good with the chief priest by doing them a favor, he decided against moving Paul to Jerusalem like they wanted. You see, After all this time, two years of him being in jail and the time even before then, their plot was the same. It had not changed. Let's get him moved, but kill him along the way. You'll remember that this was the plot that was uncovered from over two years ago in the timeline of the text, first shown to us in Acts 23, verses 12 through 15. But instead of moving Paul to Jerusalem, Festus invited those in authority to come to Caesarea to bring charges against him. Now, the text says that Festus was, he was still trying to find an opportunity to do the Jews a favor. So, after they brought their trumped up charges against Paul in Caesarea, Festus asked Paul if he wanted to go to Jerusalem to defend himself. And of course, the answer is no, of course not. I don't want to go there. I know exactly what, what they plan to do. They plan to get me on the road and try to kill me. 
hindering the advancement of the gospel. I don't want that. I want to go to Rome with the gospel. And so instead of uh, uh, going to Jerusalem to defend himself, Paul declared his innocence and then appealed to the highest authority in Rome. He appealed his case to Caesar, thus sealing his protection from the Jews and their murderous plot and his path to Rome with the gospel. I think God sovereignly worked to protect Paul and to preserve the gospel through nothing more than the Roman judicial process. The wicked men were in power in his day and have been and still are all over the world. We can trust that our God is truly able to cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purposes. And that God can use the ordinary constructs and infrastructures of everyday society to fulfill his purposes. You see, as a Roman citizen, it was Paul's birthright to appeal to Caesar. Not every, not every person who lived in Rome could appeal their case to Caesar, but those who were Roman citizens could. So it was his birthright. And in exercising his God-given right, because it was, it was God who ordained Paul to be born a Roman citizen, it was God who, before Paul ever drew his first breath, was, was setting this protection uh, mechanism in place. God was sovereignly protecting Paul and assuring that the gospel would get to Rome. Now, in recent years, there's been some conversation uh, around the matter of birthright citizenship in America, who should or shouldn't have it, and whether or not it can or should be revocable. And regardless of where you fall on the issue, what part of the conversation you uh, were you know, engaged in, I think the more important question for us who are trusting in the gospel is how are we leveraging our birthrights in service to Jesus and the advancement of the gospel? How are we, as followers, as disciples of Jesus, leveraging our birthrights in service to him and the advancement of the gospel? Now, many of you may possess uh, a passport. And if you don't already, I would encourage you to apply for one, even though we're in this weird season of travel restrictions due to the current pandemic. Go ahead and, and get a passport if you don't have one so that when and if God calls you to serve him abroad, that's one less thing that needs to be done. Uh, you'll already have it and you'll be ready to go. But I have here my passport. And there's a story uh, to tell, a longer story uh, behind this particular document. Uh, but this little blue document is coveted by peoples the world over. As they look at it, they see this as uh, a sign of citizenship to what many would consider the greatest nation on the planet. And with that citizenship comes certain inalienable rights and privileges as a citizen of the United States of America. And we would know that with all the problems that we face, even as we're currently fighting a racial injustice in our country, as we have for a long time, for the many problems that we have in America, uh, we are a blessed people. But more importantly, as disciples of Jesus, we know that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are blessed to be a blessing to others. And so with that, 
As disciple, as a disciple of Jesus, looking at Paul's example, we see him leveraging all of who he was, all, all the, the aspects of his, his personhood, not for his own benefit, but for the advancement of the gospel. Whether it was the fact that he was born a man, he leveraged that for the purposes of the gospel. Being a free person and not a slave, he leveraged that for the purposes of the gospel. Being a Jew, he leveraged that for the purposes of the gospel. And being a Roman citizen, he leveraged that and all the rest of his birthrights in service to Jesus and the advancement of the gospel. And so the question again for us today, as disciples of Jesus, even as Paul was, how are we leveraging our birthrights in service to Jesus and in the advancement of the gospel? Well, after Paul made his appeal to Caesar, Festus consulted with his council and confirmed that, well, there's nothing more that he could do or needed to be done with Paul, but send him to Caesar. And I think as we continue looking at the passage in verse 16 of chapter 25, we begin to see God's orchestration for proclamation. God is orchestrating the circumstances for the gospel to be proclaimed right here in this city. Now, after several days, we're introduced to a couple that's come to town. They're friends, it seems, of Festus, uh, who end up making a courtesy call to him as they're passing through. And it's none other than King Agrippa and Bernice. Now, Luke, the writer of Acts, he is assuming that his audience knows who this couple is. Remember, uh, in the outset of Luke's gospel, he is writing to a contemporary, a man by the name of Theophilus. And Acts is the second volume or the second installment of the continuation of the story of Jesus. And so as he is writing, uh, he is assuming that Theophilus knows who King Agrippa and Bernice are. But as for us, we have to appeal to history to learn more about this couple. And according to R. Kent Hughes, King Agrippa II is the latest of the Herodian dynasty. His great-grandfather was none other than the King Herod who feared the birth of the Christ child and murdered thousands of children in the vicinity of Bethlehem to try to thwart his birth. Uh, Agrippa's granduncle had John the Baptist murdered, had him beheaded. And his father, King Agrippa I, or the first, had executed James and imprisoned the apostle Peter. Now, with Agrippa was his sister Bernice, who had been engaged to a man by the name of Marcus, who, if you know anything about Greek history or Greek philosophy, he was the nephew of the philosopher Philio. But instead of marrying Marcus, she married her uncle, Herod, the king of Calchas. But now, whether she's still married to her uncle or not, she is living incestuously with her full-blooded brother, Agrippa. Now, on top of all of this, he was considered by the Romans to be the authority on the Jewish religion. And as a Herod, he was appointed the Roman curator of the Jewish temple, thus having the power to appoint the high priest and administer the Jewish treasury. So with all of this, it's safe to say that if anyone in Rome had a vested interest in what was going on in Jerusalem. What is this schism? What is this falling out? What, is, what are the Jewish leaders, the high priests, have to do with this man Paul? If anybody has a vested interest in this whole ordeal, it should be King Agrippa. 
Now, because Paul had appealed to to Caesar, Festus had no choice other than to to send him on to Rome, but he was puzzled as, as to exactly what he would tell Caesar the charges were that he was being sent there for. You see, Festus didn't see that Paul had done anything wrong. So he was excited that Agrippa had had rolled into town and consulted with him, which was, I believe, another part of God's sovereign plan to set the stage for gospel proclamation. Agrippa is intrigued by this man, Paul. Surely he's probably heard of him, but now that you know Paul is literally a captive audience, he wants to, to make himself captive to this captive. And so being intrigued by Paul, he wants to hear him for himself. And I believe the next thing that we see happening in this passage is Paul begins to share his story. Check it out in chapter 26. I think it's important for us to learn from Paul's example and to use this simple paradigm to share our story. So let's take a look at it. You might remember a few weeks back, Pastor Mark sharing a a four-part paradigm uh, based on the unfolding narrative of Scripture, uh, a paradigm of uh, fall, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. Well, I want to distill it down to three here and show you from this passage how Paul uses three movements, so to speak, to share his story. He first begins with his life before Christ. Check it out in chapter 26, beginning at verse 4. Paul says, all the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest set of a sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised to our ancestors, the promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, that is the correct use of the word incredible, by the way. Why do any of you consider it unbelievable, incredible that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem. And I locked up many of the saints in prison since I I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. You see, what we see Paul doing here is unpacking his story, and particularly focusing here in these verses on what his life was like, who he was, what his life was about before he met Jesus. And I would encourage you to consider the same as you think about the people that God has placed in your life, as you pray for opportunities to share the gospel, share your story, that you would consider these questions as you think about your life before Christ. What influences and experiences shaped who you were becoming as a person before becoming a disciple of Jesus? What influences and experiences shaped who you were becoming as a person before becoming a disciple of Jesus? 
Secondly, what specific forms of sin and brokenness were being manifested in your life? Like, what voices were you listening to? But also, how, how was sin manifesting itself? How were you living particularly? And then also, why was your relationship with God and with others not the way they were supposed to be? What was, what was broken? How, how, did you, how do you see brokenness playing out in your relationship with God and with other people? I think Paul lays all of that out in these verses. He talked about who he was, what he was about. He was a religious man. He was pursuing uh, the highest standards of self-righteousness or righteousness as as, as it was considered among his religious community. And how many of us might that be our story before we met Jesus? Maybe we were in church. Maybe we were reading the Bible. Maybe we were even confessing to be a Christian, but it was really more about proving ourselves to others than finding a right standing before God by trusting in his gospel. Paul says, that's who I was, and this is what it drove me to do. I persecuted Christians. I even persecuted them to the point of death and tried to get them to blaspheme. I chased them out of Jerusalem on into foreign cities. Paul was very clear and explicit about what his life looked like, how sin and brokenness were on display, what the influences and the experiences were that were shaping him as a person. And we too should include all of this, the good, the bad, and the ugly, everything in between, so that the power of God is even more on display. We're not glorifying sin. We're not glorifying and reveling in who we were before Christ, but we're, we're trying to connect our story with our audience so that they too can identify how far away we were from God once and how we've been brought near through the blood of Jesus. As for my story... The experiences, the influence that were shaping my life when I was growing up. I, I, I grew up in an environment that I considered chaotic. Uh, drug abuse, uh, physical or domestic abuse happening in my life and in my family. Uh, I felt like things were very out of control and just maybe me being a firstborn, maybe it's just who God created me and my personality. I felt the need to have a sense of control and to create control. And I did that through manipulation. That's how brokenness was manifesting itself in my life. And, and how that worked itself out in my relationship with God and with people, how, I, how, how I'm able to look back and see that brokenness on display is that all of my relationships with people and with God, they were all transactional. It was all about what I could get in the moment, particularly how I could control a given situation and make it, make it peaceful for me. Well, as we look at the text in verses 12 through 18, we see Paul going on to tell his story and share a story that we first encountered earlier in our study of Acts as we saw it play out uh, in real time. But Paul has recounted this several times as he's shared his testimony. He talks about how he met Jesus. Take a look at it in verse 12. It says, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances to, to pursue and persecute Christians. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads or the bricks. I asked, who are you, Lord? And not Lord as in 
uh, uh, Jesus is Lord, but Lord as in this person is obviously more powerful than I. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, great one? And this person, this great one, and the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul unfolds for us, for his audience, for, for Festus, for Agrippa, for Bernice, and for all who are there. As I'm sure the room is probably filled, he shares how he met Christ very clearly, very explicitly and specifically, even down to the detail of what he was being called to out of that experience of meeting Jesus. And as we consider how we would share our story, not only considering what our life was like before Christ, but I think it's incredibly important for us to consider how we share how we met Christ. Questions like these might help you in crafting this part of your story, so to speak. How do you come to put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus for salvation? How did you come to trust in the gospel? And then connect specific sins to the gospel and explore how the realities of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection exposed your need of him. Now, as for me, I met Jesus through the faithful witness of my grandmothers who were devout Christian women who were and one still is. My uh, maternal grandmother has since gone to be with the Lord. Uh, but I was exposed to the gospel through their faithful witness. They were always reading the scriptures in their homes, praying in their homes, very charismatically, my maternal grandmother. Um, and as they were going to church, they were always taking me and my cousins. And it was in that place that I was exposed to the gospel through the preaching of God's word. God, through his spirit, opened my eyes to the one, to the person, the one who had conquered sin and death and eventually led me to place my faith and trust in Jesus as the one who could, who could create peace out of chaos. And that's what I did. That's my story of how I met Jesus. And as you think about how you came to trust in the gospel, think about how you came to put your faith in Jesus and connect the specific sin struggles that were evident that the Holy Spirit exposed your need of him and led you to trust in Jesus. But Paul comes to the final movement of his story where he shares about his life since meeting Christ. So we've heard what his life was like, who he was and what he was all about, the influences that were shaping him, the voices he was listening to, how sin was manifesting in his life, how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and received this call to be an ambassador, a representative, an apostle for him to the Gentiles and to the Jewish people. He would be one who would proclaim the gospel as he does call us as well. We are ministers of reconciliation. And then Paul moves into talking about his life life since trusting Christ. And we see that in verse 19. So let's look there and check it out. It says, so then, King Agrippa, I was not obedient to the heavenly vision 
Instead, I preach to those in Damascus first, and those in Jerusalem, and in all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have had help from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and the Gentiles." Paul has shared his story of where he's come from and how he's met Jesus, but now he talks about the change that Jesus has made and what that looks like on a, on a continual basis, on a continuous basis. Like, what is he doing? What has he been doing? What is his life about now? And as we consider how to talk about what our life is like since meeting Jesus, not after meeting Jesus, because we never go after Jesus. We never get in a place where our life is after Jesus. We're, we're in Christ. And so what has our life been like since we've been found in him? I think some good questions to ask would be, what has changed? And what is changing in your life now because of your faith in Christ? Another question, how is God changing you? How is God using you? And how is God speaking to and perhaps even through you now? Share that part of your story, even as we see Paul doing that. As for me, my story, Jesus set me free from the need to manipulate circumstances to, to, to bring about calm and the chaos of my life. And he freed me to be able to serve people in my life that they too could begin to experience the Prince of Peace. People like my family, my wife, uh, the children that he's entrusted to us, uh, people that I get to serve in our church as a pastor, those I get to serve alongside in ministry as I have and I continue to be able to do as a privilege, and even those who are in our city who are yet still far from God. It is my privilege to, to have the opportunity to connect with other people and to show them the beauty and the peace that comes through knowing Jesus even as as I have experienced it. And so when you think about your life, think about the difference Jesus has made, how he's using you, how he is at work in and through you, even right now as a part of your story. And as we continue in the passage, Paul uh, then makes a gospel appeal after sharing his story, after sharing his life before Christ, how he met Christ and his life since Christ. He makes a gospel appeal in chapter 26, verses 24 through 27. It says, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed aloud or in a loud voice, you're out of your mind. Paul, you're out of your mind. Too much study is driving you mad. Are there people in your life who think you are just crazy for following Jesus? Well, let's take a look at Paul's response here. He said, but Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm not crazy. On the contrary, I am speaking words of truth and of good judgment. For the king knows about these matters. King Agrippa knows about these matters. And I, I can speak to him boldly. For I am convinced that none of these things has, a, has escaped his notice since it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I, I know you believe. 
Now, I think something interesting about this gospel appeal that he makes, he, he makes it publicly, but then he makes it very particularly to King Agrippa. And there's something interesting that unfolds here in this appeal. It is that Paul knows Agrippa. And not just knows him, but knows what Agrippa knows. And I think for me, in reading this and and, and seeing this revealed by the Holy Spirit as I was reading and preparing this, it caused me to ask the question, how much do I know that the people in my life know about Jesus? Where is square one for them? What, what level of exposure to the gospel have they had? And also, like, what do I know about maybe the, the desires of their hearts, their hopes, their dreams, their ambitions? What do I know about the things they struggle with, the things they're afraid of? Paul knows something particularly about King Agrippa that he can very specifically make a gospel appeal to him and his knowledge of the scriptures, of what the prophets have to say, particularly as it pertains to the prophecy of the Christ. Like, Festus, I'm not crazy. You might think I'm crazy, but King Agrippa knows. And so with that, as we share our story, I think it's important to to land the plane, so to speak, as we are sharing with people and make a gospel appeal. Maybe it's not as bold and as confrontational as, as Paul is making here with King Agrippa, but but inviting people to take a step toward trusting Jesus. Hopefully, by God's grace and through the work of the Spirit, they've been able to identify with your life before Jesus, seeing that man, you yourself were far from God. And then to, to hear the aspect of your story of how you met Jesus, maybe realizing uh, God has been at work in my life in some ways. I've been in environments like this, or I've had conversations like this, or maybe to realize that I haven't ever had that. And maybe this is that moment for me. Maybe Jesus is coming to meet me right now. And then talking about what your life is like since Christ, showing them that the difference that Jesus makes in all of life. This is, this is what we want to be about as a faith family, right? We want to discover the difference Jesus makes. And even as we are sharing our story, we're inviting people to discover the difference that Jesus can make in their life if they will only trust in the gospel. And Paul makes an appeal. He says, is any of this connecting with you? I have, I have some knowledge of what you know, King Agrippa. Is any of this connecting with you? Would you believe? And finally, we see Agrippa's response. Agrippa gives a response in the last part of the passage here in verses 28 through 32. And I'll just say, if you are at all uh, practicing uh, sharing your faith in any particular context or with any frequency or regularity, you've probably received the response that we're about to see from King Agrippa. And I would hope that by God's grace, the Holy Spirit is stirring your heart, maybe helping you connect the dots with the simple, uh, the simple paradigm as to how you can construct and share your story with other people that you begin to practice that. Uh, all of us are practitioners. I would hope that our practice as a faith family would increase in our city and multiply the gospel as it is being shared widely, uh, as we magnify it through our testimony, that it would be multiplied as we share it and people come to trust in the, in the gospel. But uh, Agrippa gives a response. And if you've ever shared the gospel before, it is likely you have received a response that is somewhat similar to Agrippa's here. Take a look at verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And Paul says, I wish before God 
that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am except for these chains. You see, Paul says, I don't, I don't really care if it's easy or if it's hard. I, my greatest hope is that you would become as I am. You would become one who is trusting in the gospel. You, you, would, you would be like I am as one who was far from God and now is near to God, who was an enemy of God and who has been adopted as a son, made a son of God. I wish that for you, King Agrippa, and everyone here that you would become as I am except for these chains that you would trust in Jesus. And my prayer for us today, church, is that that would be our heart cry, that our greatest desire and ambition for the people around us, those in our family, those that we work with, those in our communities, no matter where they are on the socio-political spectrum, how much we agree with them or disagree, that our greatest desire, our greatest hearts desires that they would become like us, that they would find peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But one thing is sure. God is the one who is setting up, who is orchestrating opportunities. And so I would challenge you today to be one who wakes up every morning and prays that God would open your eyes to the to the opportunities that he is orchestrating for gospel proclamation in your life. And I know this is a strange season. We, we're under all kinds of restrictions. We've just received uh, a new order that we have to wear masks uh, in the state of Washington now. Uh, and that's a weird social thing. You know, I find myself going to the grocery store in places with my mask on and smiling at people and then realizing, well, they can't see my smile and maybe it just looks like I'm staring at them crazy. Uh, but with all the, the, the weirdness and the strangeness of the season of life. God is still at work. He's still at work in us. He's still at work through us. He's still at work around us. We just need to pray and ask him to open our eyes to see the opportunities that he is orchestrating that we might be ready to proclaim the hope that is in us. We might be ready to share our story, simply speaking of what our life was like before Jesus, how we met Jesus, and the difference Jesus is making and inviting others to discover that difference through studying the scriptures, but most importantly, by trusting in the gospel for themselves. So would it be that as we are given those opportunities, we are press in, magnify the gospel, making much of Jesus, and in seeing him by his grace, multiply the gospel as others place their trust in him. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your goodness, your grace, your kindness toward us once again. I pray that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit, even as you said you would, Jesus. Empower us to be your witnesses, that we would have eyes wide open to the opportunities that you are orchestrating around us to be um, proclaimers of the gospel, proclaimers of the work that you began in us, that we know according to the scriptures you are faithful to continue into the day of Jesus Christ. May we be confident in that work. May we encourage each other in the work that you have called us to. And might we see you bring a great harvest of souls um, into your kingdom for their good, for your glory. We love you, God. And we ask that you would use us and everything about us in service to you, Jesus, and for the advancement of the gospel. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.